This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. This episode is titled 500 Years, Part 4, Black Earth. His family name was Black Earth, as in the rich, fertile soil around his hometown. In German, it's Schwarzert. His first name was Philip. He was born in February of 1497 at Breton in southwest Germany. His father was an armorer for an important German count. Though tiny for his age, Philip was brilliant. It seemed that his body put all of its energy into the development of his mind rather than his increasingly misshapen body. So at the age of only 10, he joined the scholars at the school at Forgeheim, where he learned Latin, Greek, and was introduced to classical philosophy. When it became clear that Philip was something of a prodigy, his well-known humanist uncle, Johann Ruschlin, took a hand in his education as well. It was he who suggested that the burgeoning young scholar follow the humanist fashion of the time and translate his German last name of Schwarzert into the Greek Melanchthon. When at the age of 11, both his father and grandfather died within a few days of each other, Philip moved in with his maternal grandmother. The next year, at the age of 12, he entered the University of Heidelberg, where he studied philosophy, rhetoric, and astronomy. He quickly made his mark as a scholar in Greek, but was denied his master's degree for being too young. Shifting to the school at Tübingen, he continued his studies in law, mathematics, and medicine. He was finally granted his master's, and when he turned 19, began the study of theology. Under the influence of humanists like his uncle and Erasmus, Melanchthon became convinced that true Christianity was something very different from the dry scholasticism of the academics. When his attempts at reform were opposed there in Tübingen, he accepted a call from Martin Luther to teach in the University at Wittenberg. At the ripe old age of 21, he took on the role of professor of Greek. As he studied scripture, he became increasingly convinced that Luther's ideas were theologically sound. And there's a good chance that the young Melanchthon helped clarify some of Luther's early ideas. He went with Luther to Leipzig for a debate with the Catholic apologist Johann Eck in 1519. Though he was only attending as a spectator, he ended up inserting some of his own comments into the debate. Those comments were so telling, Eck felt the need to respond to them. After returning to Wittenberg, Melanchthon published an effective reply basing his retorts in Scripture. When it became clear that Philip was a settled fixture at the University of Wittenberg and was proving himself an able assistant to Luther, the town's mayor gave consent for his daughter to marry him. In 1521, Melanchthon's lectures on Romans in the university became the basis of the Reformation's first volume on dogmatics titled Theological Commonplaces. Seeing several revisions over the following years, the work dealt with themes like the relationship of the law and gospel, the bondage of the will, and justification by faith. From the outset of his tenure as Luther's theological sidekick, Melanchthon set a priority on educational reform. He advocated a need for fluency in Greek and theological training and a restructuring of universities along more humanist lines. His plans were implemented in the reordering of the schools at Heidelberg and Tübingen, as well as brand new schools at Marburg and Konigsberg. Along with Luther, he called for each town to have a public school for the education of its young. 
In the last episode, we noted Luther's increasing cantankerousness as he aged. Some historians attribute this onerousness to his failing health and the constant pain of his last few years. But even as a younger man, Luther was given to bouts of moodiness that swung between mania and depression, sometimes wildly. Phillips, even keeled an exceedingly moderate nature, seemed the perfect foil to Luther. Three famous painters of that time gave their skills to capturing Melanchthon, Holbein, Cronach, and Albrecht Durer, whose image seems more an attempt to capture Phillips' spiritual essence than his actual appearance. Contemporaries remark that Durer capably achieved his goal. These images and the descriptions that we have of Melanchthon present a man who is likely not taller than four feet nine inches and somewhat misshapen. He was rarely in good health, but was able to accomplish as much as he did because of his well-honed work habits and extraordinary discipline. Though Melanchthon could have used his position to great personal advantage, he never accumulated wealth or possessions, but was known for his generosity and hospitality. His marriage was happy. He called his home a little church, and peace was always found there by visitors. There was a genuine affection between Philip and his wife and four children. One visitor remarked on his stay with the Melanchthons that he happened by one of the rooms to see Philip rocking a cradle with one hand while reading a book in the other. Master Melanchthon had many friends with whom he conversed often, frequently via correspondence, in which he reveals far more of himself and his ideas than he ever did publicly. In fact, Melanchthon was so generous with his thoughts that he frequently wrote speeches and treatises for others, granting them permission to claim them as their own. Melanchthon eschewed all jealousy, envy, slander, and sarcasm, though being the keen intellect that he was, and dealing so oft with obstinate theological opponents, we can be sure that his witty repartee would have been entertaining. To put it succinctly, Melanchthon was the scholar's scholar. We've probably all heard and maybe even known those people who have to be or think they are the smartest person in the room. Well, with Melanchthon, he aspired to be not the smartest, though there's little doubt he was, but his goal was to be the noblest, the most honest and decent soul in the room. To that end, he was brutal in his self-assessment, even to the point of acknowledging his faults to his opponents and critics. After the Diet of Worms and the obvious break with Rome that it clearly meant, Luther seemed content to go his way and take the church in Germany with him. Then, when other reformers differed from Luther's positions on various issues, he seemed willing to split from them as well. Melanchthon worked hard at effecting a reconciliation with both papists and other reformers, if only they would be willing to negotiate on the basis of scripture. He and Luther took part in a meeting at Marburg in 1529 with Zwingli and the Swiss reformers in an attempt to find common ground. The colloquy blew up over their different understandings of the nature of the Eucharist. Melanchthon was able to hammer out an agreement with Martin Bucer and the Southern Germans on the same issue in the Wittenberg Concord of 1536. He contributed the 13 articles that Lutherans and Anglicans agreed on two years later. Having achieved unity with Bucer, the two participated in discussions at Hagenau and Worms that eventually led to a monumental colloquy at Regensburg in 1541. It was there that Cardinal Contarini 
made a serious bid for reconciliation with the reformers. But when it became clear that there were issues that both sides could not compromise on, then the split with Rome and the Protestants was final. While Melanchthon seems a committed ecumenist in these efforts, a decade later, when Thomas Cranmer called for a Reformation-wide ecumenical council in London, Melanchthon was less enthusiastic. But there's a good reason for that. He was being accused by hardcore supporters of Luther of betraying the cause and weakening Lutheran teaching. And Philip's desire for harmony ought not be understood as his being soft on error. As early as 1522, he argued with Luther's other assistant at Wittenberg, Andreas Karlstadt, who, while Luther was in hiding at Wartburg, assumed control of the Reformation movement in Luther's absence. Karlstadt's attitude was that the reforms ought to go forward as swiftly as possible. The problem was the nobles and the rulers who were generally in favor of the break with Rome found the pace of reform that Karlstadt urged too much too soon. Even Luther advocated a slower pace. So he left the Wartburg to return to Wittenberg and dress Karlstadt down. Andreas stayed for a time, but frustrated that the reforms he knew were needed weren't being enacted swiftly enough, he left to spread his ideas of radical reformation across Germany and Switzerland. He eventually landed in the university at Basel. Along with Luther, Melanchthon was instrumental in formulating the 1530 Augsburg Confession defining the tenets of Lutheranism. Then in 1540, Melanchthon issued a revised edition of the Confession with edits that many Lutherans found objectionable. He was accused by Matthias Flacius of selling Luther out after the great reformer's death. Melanchthon adopted a more moderate view than Luther on such issues as predestination and the nature of the Lord's presence in communion. His supporters were scornfully called Philippists. These attacks caused the gentle and uncontentious soul considerable distress in his last years. But after his death in 1560, Melanchthon's essential unity within Lutheranism was vindicated and he was buried beside his friend. Between Luther and Melanchthon, the later was more the scholar, while the former was more the man of action. The steady Melanchthon was the perfect foil to the mercurial Luther. Their friendship owed much to the fact that each recognized the value of the very different style the other provided in the massive undertaking that they'd assumed. While this may be oversimplifying it, we might say that Luther was the face and the voice of the early Reformation, while Melanchthon was its brains and heart. Melanchthon's role was best served when he was the quiet one behind the scenes. When Luther was gone and he was called on to step up and take the lead, well, he proved unequal to the task. Now, make no mistake, no one doubted Melanchthon's piety and integrity. It's just that he didn't possess the force of character that Luther had. Still, there's a case to be made that had it not been for Philip Melanchthon, there wouldn't have been a Martin Luther and the Reformation as we've come to know it. So, this world would be a very different place. Amen.